we are here. At 11FS headquarters in London, we work for episode 32 of Blockchain Insider. Today, we bring you the crypto markets be down, crypto comes to Puerto Rico, and we bring you a fantastic interview from Jameson Lott. All this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. Alrighty, this week joining me as always is Colin G. Platt, who's in the room, made it through customs again. Welcome back. Yay! I'm so excited about this Jameson Lop interview. I'm like the biggest groupie. You are a groupie. You got away from your field and into this country again. How's that? Sadly, I'm no longer living next to a field. I have a garden though. <gasps> you have a you gave up on the field and now you're all about the garden? I live in town now, man. Oh, ugh, I'm, I'm so disappointed in you. I'm, I'm feeling let down. Uh, we have a great guest as well joining us other than Colin G. Platt. Uh, we have Sarah Feenan from Clearmatic. Sarah, how are you? I'm very well, Simon. Thank you for having me. Sarah, thanks for being back. You were with us once before, I think, on, on Blockchain Insider in the early days. Good to have you with us. Before we get started, I just wanted to let listeners know that today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that may even have a garden um, that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy using smart contracts. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 with over 160 of the world's largest banks and tech partners. It's built on and ready to use today. A lot of the financial community are deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. You can transform your business ecosystem and your garden ecosystem. Now you can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on. Go to Corda.net to learn more. All right, Colin, let's let's get to some news. The market be down. And it's not the only market that's down. I mean, the crypto market specifically. When Coindesk did a story on this, uh, they said the crypto market is down 50% from all-time highs. Uh, looks like it's down a bit more than that now. Yeah, I know Gary's going to be super happy that we're talking about prices, isn't he? Gary Fagan. Yeah, that's the man. So yeah, prices have been up and down and I've honestly stopped looking um, and stopped kind of caring about what the prices are anymore because every time I look at them, they're worth a little bit less. Is that because you can't look anymore? What about you, Sarah? Uh, well, it's a bit like soap opera, isn't it? But I don't actually watch soap operas, so... I, I want it to be like a, a telenovela um, where somebody turns out to be the uncle's mother's brother's dog walker and everybody's like... <gasps> But the crypto markets have been a, a bit like that recently. There's been so much drama on them, but it's what goes up must come down. It seems as much. I mean, did you see somebody put out a tweet the other day uh, with a picture of the Ripple price chart going up and straight back down? And it looked like the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It was just like, to the moon, back to the floor. <laughs> It's, it, it was. It was a perfect rocket trajectory because it came back down and didn't quite make orbit. Um, it's like More the, like Apollo 13, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Next story after this one, though, because I think we kind of knew the prices were down, were maybe some of the reasons why that's happening. The first one's a bit UK-centric. So the bank in the UK, Lloyds, has banned customers buying Bitcoin on credit cards, which is some bad music. Um, so Lloyds has credit cards like a lot of banks, and their APRs are in the sort of 19%, 20%, 28%. Um, people were taking debt out to buy crypto. Uh, and I think it, it did make a, a whole lot of sense at one point with the prices were going up and up in theory, but could it ever really make sense? I don't know. Anyway, the really interesting thing is uh, if you look at their offerings, they have a 36-month 0% balance transfer. So if you were to go take out a load of debt somewhere else and you've now got a load of losses, you can transfer it to Lloyd's. So you can spread your loss around to the next credit card company that will charge you 30% a year. I know there was a few 
few U.S. banks, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, and City as well. City as well that have done similar things in the U.S. Um, I know some people are kind of upset, saying, "Yeah, banks are coming back to to try to kill Bitcoin because they realize it's their end." It is really fucking irresponsible to go out and think you're going to make millions of dollars by buying Bitcoin on credit with 30% interest rates. Look what happens when these things drop by 50%. You're in the hole. What are you going to do? And people are going to lose a lot of money. As we always say, this is Vegas, boys. Uh, don't spend money you don't have. Don't spend money you don't have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, couldn't agree more. It's it's one thing buying it on debit, but taking out credit, we've just seen what's happened to the prices. You know, it's... Uh it's, it's scary Strange. times right now. And I think this ban, I think, comes to really benefit Lloyds. They say they're doing it in this release to, quote unquote, protect customers. But actually, are they more concerned about the risk of losses here? And are they concerned about what the rights are? If a customer comes to them and says, hey, I spent all this money from you and I bought a Bitcoin, but that good is damaged because the regulated position of cryptocurrencies isn't very well known. So I guess these banks are just kind of protecting themselves from that. But the, the question on this kind of comes back to, is it really the bank's roles and, and who picked it for to be the bank's roles to decide what we can and can't buy? I mean, uh, taking out credit irresponsibly is, is arguably part of the bank's deal when you take out a credit card. But telling you what you can and can't buy might go over and stretch that line. Yeah, I mean, that's how they make their money, isn't it? By us not being able to pay it back or, you know, not all of us, but... Uh, but I, I agree with you on not being able to buy certain things uh, by decree of a bank. But equally, it comes back to the protection, the consumer protection that credit cards offer, which say debit cards don't. And I can't speak for all of them because I don't know all of the rules. So feel free to tweet me if I'm wrong later. But that a lot of purchases are protected by certain credit card schemes and not debit card schemes. And a bank will not like uncertainty. So if it's if it's uncertain as to whether or not they are on the hook for refunding you for the losses that you've had in Bitcoin, well, they're, they're going to kill that risk. Whereas with gambling, it's fairly clear as to whether or not they're on the hook. So they don't mind you gambling. They don't mind you spending all of your money on uh, anything, as long as it's profitable for them. I get the sense that this was not profitable for them. So they're trying to exit the business. I don't think it's really about protecting customers or gardens. Uh, all right. So next story is one from Coindesk. As we, as we speak right now, the CFTC and the SEC commissioners are giving testimony uh, in, in front of various committees of the US uh, government. And I think part of this is um, really in response to the massive buildup of price around cryptocurrencies. Uh, and a lot of people, I suspect, are thinking this is really at the end of a wave of regulatory mood music and um, CFTC and the SEC especially have been towards the front of that. So any thoughts as to what's going on here, Colin? Yeah, so we've talked a lot about um, outside the US, some of the different regulatory uh, points of view. And I mean, you get everything from uh, Chinese regulators, local and at a national level, straight up banning most everything that comes in, into contact with cryptocurrencies and ICOs very specifically. And then you get the, the much more liberal ends of things with uh, certainly some of the smaller countries. The UK has kind of been in the middle. We've talked about this a lot with uh, the Prime Minister deciding that only criminals need them for, you know, booze and hookers. But then you get the US just kind of hasn't acted 
much. And the things they have come out with have been very much of what we've been talking about. They want to protect consumers and in, in investments. ICOs have been in the limelight. At the same time, they're still very open to innovation. And this is something we're definitely seeing from the, the administration, from, from Donald Trump and, and those around him, pushing. They want the United States to be on the forefront of innovation. And this happens to be one of those areas. Now, you can agree with, with that or not, but that's kind of become the mandate. So it's a very difficult road for them to walk down of, on the one hand, saying we want to protect people who could suffer massive losses from a 50%, 60%, 70% price crash in these things or buy into a fraudulent ICO, but at the same time recognizing that there is, in fact, innovation and this could change things for the better. Um, we just don't know what they are quite yet. So let's let them roll. Mm, yep. Yeah, uh, I agree. There was a, a somebody leaked or purposefully leaked um, one of the speech, basically, that was that has been spoken now. And uh, it did highlight exactly that, that they're very, very um, positive on innovation. Uh, and I think that there's, there is probably first mover advantage in setting the regulation, especially if you want to be seen at the forefront of that uh, regulation. And as we know, these cryptocurrencies and blockchain in itself is, is cross-jurisdictional. So being able to set that is actually quite important. And I, I see no reason why, if it's sensible, other countries won't follow. That opportunity to set an agenda about how you regulate this global new emerging asset class, I think, is something that the US has grasped the mantle on quite successfully. Yeah, and it ties into their kind of control, well, control, but the US dollar being seen as the kind of global reserve currency. And so it it makes sense that they want to set that as well. It's US it dollar, US rules, yeah. denominate crypto in US dollar. And if it does become massive, then you have an option on that future, um, which not for future the product, but an option on, on that possible set of outcomes. Uh, so the the interesting thing about that is the US, has, I think since 2013 under FINRA, said that they expect KYC AML. So since 2013, they've done what South Korea just did a few weeks ago and what the PBOC have now really started to enforce. That, that information sharing at the exchange level has been there for some time. The US has, has often been lobbied and pilloried as being not that progressive. I actually think it's a remarkably progressive regime. In the kind of stuff coming out of... Uh, Clayton and uh, Giancarlo's testimony uh, was actually released. I don't think it was leaked. Uh, and some of the key bits in there, uh, they're exploring as to whether or not you need specific regulation in terms of the trading platforms, um, but they're looking to bring clarity and fairness to the space. So the big challenge in the US is a lot of um, securities regulations are actually implemented on a state level. So if I want to buy cryptocurrencies, there are some exchanges where I can't buy them in my state. Now, how do you enforce that? How do you manage that? So I know there are a number of organizations pushing for that to be at the federal level, um, but there's always that states versus federal kind of uh, set of questions that, that comes back into it. Yeah, and I think also on the topic of regulation, there is uh, this is the first foray into trading on the internet that some sort of Main Street or uh, retail investors might have had. So it's quite new to them to see what an exchange looks like on in front of their screens. Uh, and it's all very exciting as well. And if we've seen over the last, say, six months, you could make a lot of money from it. So you can see why people have stuck. But also there's, on the flip side, there are regulations that surround exchange exchanges in the US and outside and in Europe as well. And the, the trading cryptocurrency aren't 
they aren't afforded the same protections that other exchanges are, like ATFs. And, and on that point, there was there's actually a really interesting sentence, I think, in, in the released uh, testimony, uh, which they state, unfortunately, it is clear that some have taken advantage of the lack of understanding to prey on investors' excitement about the quick rise in cryptocurrencies and ICOs. And they actually quoted something that we've talked about a lot, um, that it was an SEC enforcement against what was, quote, so easy that it is grandma approved. It's dangerous. At the end of the day, I think there is definitely a silver lining to the cloud. Simon and I had a conversation last week with someone who said um, they're getting a lot of interest initially from very young investors who are putting money into cryptocurrencies. And then they're saying, wow, actually, we can do this. Why don't I put money into, into mutual funds? Why don't I put money into other things? So we've heard a lot of economists come out and say millennials aren't saving, millennials aren't investing. And maybe cryptocurrency is the quote unquote gateway drug. I love that. I absolutely love that. And, and it. I was um, so on, on FinTech Insider News, our sister show. I was I was kind of mocked a little bit for talking about Robinhood, and I think I may have even mentioned this on the last Blockchain Insider. But that kind of can we get people to pay attention to investing, and maybe volatility and drama and the novella thing is what markets needed because markets were so boring and dull, and crypto made them interesting. And if you're sitting there in your twenties now, you've you've started to think about money in a way that you haven't. This is your moment where you go, oh crap, because in two thousand and eight. I remember I was in my early 20s and the markets crashed and I was like, oh crap, I need to think about money because it might not always go up and savings aren't easy. And what if my pension's not for sure? We've had a whole new generation of people discover that and maybe discover what it's like to lose for the first time. And so I think that's that's going to be the start of something. Yeah, I mean, that is very interesting. But if you sort of rewind 20 years further back than that, we were in a world where banking wasn't particularly sexy. It was a very normal job. It was very sort of, I know a lot of generational jobs were like that, one job for life and things but and then fast forward to 2008 and there's a big financial crisis and our generation or the people of our age um, aren't afforded that same security of of the generation before us and do we think we're going to get even less security from the generation ahead of us what if they don't get in early is it still another structure of the same kind of pyramid scheme I, I, um, I didn't so. say pyramid scheme there. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying anything is a pyramid scheme, but if you get in earlier, you tend to... Public pensions may be a pyramid scheme. <laughs> Maybe. Well, you exactly. You first, guys. Um, and, and I think on the back of this, look, we're going to see an EU directive coming in June around virtual currencies specifically. Uh, and, and so there's a silver lining, aside from making investors pay attention who hadn't paid attention before, and maybe the social benefits of that, there's also the fact that the cryptocurrency space was struggling for legitimacy. As they, these activities from regulators happen, they become more and more legitimate. And the excuses for banks not to support people who want to transact with this world become less and less. And then becomes the really scary question, okay, so what's the actual value of a cryptocurrency? What's the actual real world value of these things? Is it is it just... Uh, was it right all along? Was it just tulips? Or, or is there some real world value here that represents uh, digitally native tokens, digitally native asset classes? And can these digitally native asset classes like uh, film and digital art and so on, can those non-fungible assets find a home in financial markets in a way that other things couldn't? There's a story from Trustnodes saying that uh, some US senators have introduced a bill 
Um, I, I, I was just going to leave it there because that was quite fun. But no, the uh, exempting tokens from securities laws. Now, this bill has not been passed, but it's interesting that some senators have gotten as far as introducing that bill. So what do you think about this one, Colin? I think there's lots of caveats around this. And of course, we'd love to have that idea of um, exempting tokens from securities law. But I think it's much more nuanced around it. I'm definitely not a lawyer. I barely understand any of it. And I understood that it's only in the state of Wyoming. Um, So fantastic. Um, But let's not take this as uh, the United States uh, Senate is looking at doing this. This is literally the least populous state in the US. It is very big for business because of tax reasons. Um, So much like uh, the Channel Islands in in the United Kingdom punch well above their weight as far as business, Wyoming does in the US for very different reasons. But they are looking at some of these things potentially being uh, ring fenced outside of securities laws, but it's mostly things like uh, tradable gift cards and prepaid phone things on a blockchain. Yeah, and they do specify that it's not marketed as a security in their actual bill. So that makes sense. And and, uh, you know, maybe we'll start to see a lot more differently governed models of tokens emerging that aren't just, um, you know, to, to reference one of your later articles, the ICO swindle, the greater fool, somebody will buy it for yeah. more than me, but uh, that really kind of speak to usage and like a work to earn kind of model, for example. I've seen a lot of good work lately on helping people understand the different types of token out there because it gets really confusing. Like, I'm, I, it's like, okay, so you're buying this token in this pre-sale. The value might go up or go down, but what is the token? Like, what is this thing I'm actually buying? What does it do? What does it get me? Because sometimes, like, it, it allows me to use a product that hasn't been built yet. Well, would I want to use that product? And is this team going to build this thing? Uh, versus sometimes it's buying me a share of their future income, in which case, all right, so that's functioning a bit more like a security. It's a bit more like shares or dividends and that sort of thing. So there's, there's really kind of a, a gap in the market for, an, I think, an industry level of coalescence around how do you how do you actually define these things and how do you help different regulators understand them because i think some people do have a point that not everything in there is a security but a lot of it is i think at the end of the day where everybody's really trying to go is like elon musk and his flamethrowers or not flamethrowers um and basically trying to bring in a load of cash to finance what they're trying to do. And they're doing that with tokens and they'd like them all to be looked at like flamethrowers when what they're really trying to do is dig a hole in the ground that won't pay off for another 30 years. But a lot of those things are securities in most, if not all, regulations around the world. And there are clearly things, and this is time after time, the SEC has said we're looking beyond function. We're looking into what's actually happening inside of this thing. I love that, that idea that the boring company is like basically selling tokens but as a but they're doing it in a different way they're selling you hats and flamethrowers and that's a way to generate revenue for like do drilling holes in the ground that's going to take a couple of decades why you need a flamethrower for that i don't know but hey maybe everybody that bought them gets to like burn the first car that comes through they're buying elon musk the brand really aren't they True. Alrighty. Um, speaking of more regulation um, in Canada, some regulators are apparently set to approve the country's first blockchain ETF. But it's uh, it's not all as it seems, Colin. It is. It is not. First of all, it's from Canada, so nothing's as it seems. Yeah. We do love the Canadians. So this is an ETF that uh, has been provisionally approved by the Canadian regulator. It holds equities from companies that are directly or indirectly uh, linked to blockchain or cryptocurrency. A lot of these have been companies who saw their their stock soar because they put blockchain in the name in place of things like. Uh, 
iced tea or uh, companies we talked about last week or the week before, uh, companies that were doing oil mining that decided, hey, why don't we get me some of this blockchain yeah. and threw that in. Uh, we'll see, but it's definitely not um, a Bitcoin ETF, which is what a lot of people wanted to sell it as. Definitely not what, as all as it seems. It's definitely not a garden. Um, but uh, next story on Wired, uh, the big ICO swindle. Sarah, you referenced this one a moment ago. Um, this is actually from Joy Ito, who's the, I think, was the head of the MIT Media Lab. And of course, MIT Media Lab and MIT famous for having come up with uh, just about every invention in technology, some, some amazing things, and they're always way ahead of their time. Um, they also have the MIT sort of digital currency project that, that they've had funded. Joy, had, for some time, had been quite supportive, but this, this arguably this tech purist uh, has said ICOs are a bit of a swindle, a bit of a scam. You should avoid them. Um, did, did you have a chance to read this story? I did, yes. And to summarise, he's, he's basically saying that ICOs are kind of not how he envisaged the, what the world would look like when him and his friends set up DigiCash uh, in the 90s. And I can kind of see his point that there's this immediate rush in as soon as people have realised what the potential of something like blockchain and the potential to issue your own currency or token or whatever you want to call it on top of that and raise money that can be transferred into real money, which seemingly is only going up, that's instantly what people did. And they haven't actually enacted any of the good things they wanted to do for blockchain to make the world a better place. You know, referencing Vitalik's tweet storm from a while ago saying how many of the unbanked are banked. And this to me ties in with the same theme of what is this really for and what are people using it for? Because if it's just going to raise more money to go into the pockets of the same people, then... Well, okay, great. But otherwise, if it's really uh, transformational underlying technology, then let's focus more on that. Let's see more investment in that. So I find this interesting as well, uh, because whilst all of those points you make summarize his individual position, to me, it almost, uh, when I look at, uh, we covered last week, the Telegram ICO and some venture capitalists trying to get into Telegram doing the, their coin offering, a lot of the early VC firms like Andreessen Horowitz who were involved in funding organizations or, or fund mini funds that then got into ICOs have, have almost stopped and backed out of the ICO space entirely. It's almost like those those uh, poster children for the Silicon Valley tech elite have kind of gone, yeah, no, um, ICOs were the thing, but maybe, maybe they've turned their back on it now. It's too mainstream, not cool anymore, maybe. ICOs are dead. Come on. Like, yeah. what, what's what's left in 2018 in ICOs? I mean, Telegram clearly jumped the shark. They, they wanted to raise, I heard they did actually raise $2 billion. So by far, the biggest ICO, by far. Um, what are they actually delivering? Like, who has gone, done an ICO and delivered anything other than Ethereum? I haven't seen anything yet, but please, you know, tweet at me if I'm wrong and you have delivered something. I think Elon did better with the flamethrowers. At least they work, right? That would be great to have a token ICO on flamethrowers. Why not? I wouldn't be surprised if somebody's done it. Can, can I take a slightly different take quickly on this? I think ICOs and cryptocurrencies is a broader take here is Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, ICOs, all of this is one single package is nine years old right? And think of this as like a growing child into an adult. We're still at very rambunctious preteen uh, times. We saw this thing when it was much younger, going up, down and everywhere. Nobody knew what it was doing. It was discovering itself. It's still just about going through puberty here. Mm -hmm. Like blockchain is going through puberty. Mm -hmm. It's still trying to figure itself out and it's breaking things and burning down the house or whatever the hell it's going to do. 
but it doesn't really know what it wants to be when it grows up. And we're all trying to figure this out. And I think that's very much this sense that people are saying, you're throwing money into black hole and you're throwing it onto to greater fools. At the end of the day, it might come to, you know, be a live at home until it's 30 in the basement, or it might turn out to be the next CEO of a tech company. We don't know that yet. We're hoping it's the tech company and not living in their, their parents' basement until they're 40. Well, it could grow up to be Brock Pierce. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> For those that don't know, Brock Pierce was uh, a child actor in The Mighty Ducks. Indeed. And a uh, story in the New York Times uh, where Brock Pierce and several others uh, are moving to Puerto Rico and they are uh, making a crypto utopia. Um, so in what they call uh, Pertopia, they're going to basically try and get together and sell their homes and cars in California, establish residency on the uh, Caribbean island in the hope of avoiding what they see as onerous state and federal taxes. And these men almost exclusively men, have a plan for what they're going to do with their wealth. They're going to build a new city where the money is virtual and the contracts are public to just show the rest of the world what a crypto future could look like. Oh, my God. Say your line. Come on. (laughs) So it looks like some bros are brewing. This is not a good look, guys. Come on. You go right after... Hurricane Maria has decimated the island. You brought in your millions. You don't want to pay taxes. You're going to buy up and build your own cities to live your own lives and whatever you want to do. Even the hedge fund managers that are down there escaping taxes are calling you out. This is audacious. Like, get a fucking life. Pay your goddamn taxes and live in a place rather than trying to take it over. Live in a place, actually. Bring something back to the community. Don't just take over some old children's museum because you got it on the cheap and don't pretend that moving there to dodge taxes is creating a utopia like no they call it the monastery i mean fuck them yeah it's just a sign of how silly things have become really and actually how a uh, rebalancing might not be such a bad thing yeah so uh, crypto being down might not be a bad thing indeed um on the back of this colin you discovered a story in the washington post uh where somebody said uh, bitcoin is my potential pension uh was driving people in kentucky to join the craze and this was published on february 3rd but i guess the, they probably did quite a lot of research because uh, this is a long old article from the washington post here yeah I, I think anybody that's interested in kind of the story of the people uh the real people on the street investing in this uh should definitely have a look at this great article uh, a bit lengthy but it talks about a lot of normal humans that invested in cryptocurrencies because they saw the prices going up. People that um, say, you know, I'm doing software sales. I don't ever see myself paying off my own debt, not even talking about my children who are just going into college now. Um, They're talking about, you know, I see this stuff go up. I saw this 13-year-old kid that invested in it four years ago, and now he's a millionaire. How can I do the same thing? And it speaks to the thing that we've been talking about of people putting money they can't afford to lose into this because they think it's a sure bet, and that needs to be protected. It also talks about, you know, there are some of those bright stars that uh, got in early and got lucky in Kentucky. We all need to be very careful. And if you are thinking about investing in cryptocurrencies for the first time, definitely read this. Uh, Think about the risks. You've seen it happen in real life if you haven't seen it before some of us that have been in this for a bit longer have seen big crashes before um they're pretty usual here yeah and use common sense like the um not leaked but released statement from uh the sec who are speaking as we speak uh use common sense if it looks like security if it smells like security it probably is a security and what goes up must come down this is 
these kind of mantras are no different from normal investing or sorry uh, mainstream mm. traditional investing well indeed i mean you just need to look at the dow jones or the FTSE or the dax in the last couple of days they come down too and i i saw a story about uh, how some wealth managers are getting angry phone calls from their clients because the uh, the dow jones is down four percent and it's like yeah the, these things happen in markets and they they've happened a lot faster in cryptocurrencies but things going down is normal um and i think living with the consequences and planning accordingly is is, is a great lesson for for everybody um but i think i guess the one thing with mainstream streaming all of this is that uh, there's a story in Reuters, Colin, where compliance officers are sweating as cryptocurrency trades have gone, quote-unquote, mainstream. Yes, and and I particularly like this one because Anna Herrera, who is fantastic, quoted me. So one of these things that um, a lot of people have been kind of looking at in the background is there's been a lot of announcements about partnerships from big companies with cryptocurrency companies. It started out with things like R3 and, um, you know, the, the notion that uh, a bank joined R3 was big news amongst banks, but it wasn't really big news that people could buy into. Um, and then you saw companies tripling uh, their share price because they said the word blockchain or there was rumors they partnered with Ripple. And then it became banks actually going out and partnering with things like uh, Zcash or Zcash, and that goes through the roof. And there's been a lot of speculation that there there are questions uh, about whether people are doing insider trading on this. Um, we saw things about Coinbase uh, and Litecoin and stuff. Bitcoin Cash being listed, potential things on there. A lot of compliance officers have to watch normal investments like bonds and equities and how their their own banking staff might need to be careful around this so they're not trading on insider in, uh, information or at least not giving the appearance of it uh, even when they're not at all able to do it. It's something that's starting to come to the forefront, but it's still so nascent that people haven't quite figured it out. I think that there are a lot of people in there in banks that are very close to it and they generally use their best judgment. I would I would question this in non-banks uh, that have partnered because they're not necessarily used to it. Not because they're malicious, just if you worked at IBM, do you know that you shouldn't be investing in this company and then six months later, you put out a PR that says, oh yes, by the way, we partnered with this company. Yeah. It, it's uh, that sort of knowledge is a gap and it's not always malice I think is an interesting point and then also if you're uh, a compliance officer you've always you've already got the day job you've already got the stuff you look after and this new thing comes along so the amount of thinking time you have to take in this new world is limited the amount of knowledge you have about it is limited the amount of uh, kind of the optics of cryptocurrencies look horrible if you're a compliance officer um, people say they're all anonymous and governments are saying we should look at them more and there's more regulation coming it's like you can see why they're just like well i need to keep it out and i need to think about how i limit it and now people have started to buy it i don't know that that's an option anymore i think you have to start to engage with how do i put sensible limits in for people internally but also for customers and then once you do that you actually come up the knowledge curve and what what i find um kind of exciting and frustrating at the same time is that the technologies like cryptocurrencies give compliance officers something that they never really had before in terms of audit trail of transactions. The way in which you can follow the money from a transaction monitoring and an AML perspective, for example, throughout Bitcoin, and, and the way, therefore, they were able to capture the guys behind Silk Road and many other things is phenomenal. Like, you would kill for that inside the existing banking system. So, like, this idea that uh, it's all bad, I don't necessarily agree with, but I can see why it looks all bad. Yeah, and I think that definitely people looking at this that need to understand it as part of their job have to play with it. 
Um, so there need to be sensible rules around it, as you as you say, to understand these benefits. And if you're just reading about it, um, you're not going to fully experience it until you actually play with it. Uh, if you want to learn more, do do reach out to us because uh, both Colin and I have, and, and I know Sarah has as well, but um, spent a lot of time helping people understand this inside large organizations. Uh, all right, next story, though, speaking of large organizations, um, headline from Coindesk, which really caught my attention. 2018, um, enterprise blockchain might be fine ready to break out. Colin, I think this was one of your predictions for 2018. It was. Enterprise blockchain to the moon in 2018. <laughs> where, where do I buy that coin? I think uh, probably at your normal stockbroker here. Um, there are a lot of things that uh, have kind of gone quiet on the, the enterprise side, and a lot of people have said, oh, they're not doing anything. Um, I mean, we were, we were talking about this earlier. We were at our three meetup last week, and I think the amount of excitement from techs that work at a bank was palpable in the room. It was about really geeky stuff, uh, which generally excites me when geeks get excited about geeky things. Yeah. And uh, a lot of it felt like the early days of going to the Ethereum meetups, and somebody goes, oh, look at this cool tool that I built for other devs inside of my organization that's now open source at a bank. And that's a big change. Um, these things are starting to come. They're not going to be replacing systems in the next couple of years, but it's going to be those little things around the edges that go, oh, that makes my life a little bit easier. These legit developer communities are popping up. Like it's actual developers engineering real things. And I think that's this, the big question about enterprise was, was it all going to be talk? And it doesn't appear to be that way, Sarah. Mm, no, for sure. I think 2018 is definitely the year where we'll see a lot of these things coming out of POCs. We've all seen POCs. It's about getting that kind of final investment and pushing things over the line and I think the tooling is a very important point you make there Colin because uh, that's always been one of the sort of um, the challenges the hurdles to overcome in the blockchain space so a lot of the tooling surrounding it is is pretty horrible but now I, I think that it, it's definitely maturing and there's you know people are starting to eat their own dog food to, so to speak and being able to use the tools for their own purpose and inside their organizations which which helps a great deal so the story itself comes up with a couple of main themes well several main themes uh, firstly apparently the software is ready i often describe the space as having three main actors in it you've kind of got the r3 and corder based code bases and and people using that and its strengths and relative weaknesses and how you use it you talk about the hyperledger um kind of foundation and project and and where uh, and there's probably two code bases within there obviously you've got fabric but now sawtooth has also hit 1.0 uh, and number of people using those projects and starting to move out of pilot towards production rollouts in 2018. Uh, and then, of course, you've got JP Morgan and Quorum. Uh, and, of course, the, the criticisms of those are, are out there. Um, but uh, those are probably your big, big three beasts. So well, the software I, I think I'd throw the digital assets, got their own code base in there, and obviously they're, they're moving forward with the Australia Stock Exchange. I, I think that's, that's the fourth one to be watching if you're interested in this. It's still very behind closed doors. That, that would be the thing, right? So that's why I've, I've called these the three, but yeah. And watch out for uh, Clearmatics in 2018. We've just recently open sourced a privacy solution, a privacy, um, uh, yeah, and uh, we've got another pro a program of forthcoming open sourcing as well this year. Yeah, check it out. The whole Ethereum-based technology, probably, yeah, yeah that, that there is a lot of interesting uh, things going on being built 
on top of or next to Ethereum, extending what Ethereum does in a public network, specifically for private networks. And I think you guys at Clearmatics were leading this very early. So definitely to be commended. To be fair, I should say that the JP Morgan Quorum stuff yeah. is heavily Enterprise Ethereum Alliance and Zcash sort of sort of based. Yeah. And so actually, if I was to restate it, it would be um, the ETH-based forks for Enterprise, the Hyperledger-based um, projects for Enterprise, and then probably R3 and Corda. And, and you can group most things into those three, uh, apart from some specific bespoke closed-door solutions. But those are becoming less and less. So your Chain.coms, your Cobalt DLs, your uh, your Symbionts, they've sort of made some conversations about pilots and POCs and traction, but uh, it's gotten a lot quieter lately, whereas those, those other names seem to have more momentum. But that could just be the optics. So um, just to recap then, the story says the software is ready, interoperability is moving forward. Apparently Ripple and Swift will change the game. Um, that one, I think I completely disagree with. Um, because I don't know if Swift are going to change the game and Ripple we've talked about um, plenty on, on this show um, bank POCs will evolve um, so looking for people to kind of move from the POC further and then lastly uh, cryptocurrencies really enter the mix this one this one I can I can sort of see but now the price has dropped out maybe it's going to take a little bit longer but the gradual sort of uh, normalization of the use of cryptocurrency. I agree with this and I don't. Um, I mean, I don't think cryptocurrencies are necessarily going to spur on enterprise blockchain. I think uh, there are the gray areas like Ripple of, is this enterprise? Is this cryptocurrency? Um, most of the things that move forward don't need a cryptocurrency in enterprise land. And if they do, um, and there's a few things that people have talked about, like Stellar with IBM's announcement, it's not really the same ilk. Yeah, no, I flip it because the, what blockchains are solving for in enterprise versus what cryptocurrency does is two different things. Cryptocurrency enters enterprise and banking in a way of like, well, okay, my clients want to buy this stuff and or uh, I want to be a customer of this stuff or uh, I want to help trade this stuff. And so it becomes like another product the financial services world sells, which I think it, it, it actually naturally understands that more than its own tech change. And and I think the the interesting thing to, to kind of lead on to that is that there are a lot of new tools that need to be built to handle things like Bitcoin futures, even without using a blockchain um, that may actually help foster some of the blockchain things. So it's we've talked about this. It's not how Bitcoin will necessarily impact banking. It's what are the impacts that will occur in banking because of Bitcoin? Yeah. I'm going to gloss over the next set of stories, um, but I had a group of them around uh, identity. So Evername and R3 uh, paired something called Sovereign ID with Corda. Identity is is one of those subjects people have talked about with blockchain and DLT being being really key for some time. Interesting that they've gotten together. Um, Evername being being one of the the kind of leaders in that space. Uh, obviously, Blockstack have their own solution as well that's used in um, this Tradle and many others. Will any of these gain traction i think that the jury's out but it remains to be seen Let, let's see if something happens um and then a couple of other bits linked to that um different approaches to uh, ethereum identity standards a story on medium uh, comes from uport um obviously uport is the consensus project looking at identity um really long read here by uh pele bradigard i don't know if i've said his last name right uh, who's the engineering lead for 
U-Port. Um, but sort of looking at uh, launching ELC 725, a proposed identity standard, uh, which, which could be interesting because, uh, as we were saying, the Ethereum-based forks and code bases are becoming uh, kind of more and more known. Uh, so we'll see if anything happens there. Uh, and then the last story was on New Scientist. A dark web users are easy to unmask through their Bitcoin use, which links back to that piece we were saying earlier about uh, kind of if you work in a compliance department, turns out maybe crypto isn't so bad. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a useful thing. Um, all right, so, so moving past those. Um, story in Cointelegraph. Uh, UNICEF have asked PC gamers to mine Ethereum and donate to Syrian children. Um, so PC gamers, turns out they're, they're the uh, ultimate altruists. Um, well, they've been asked to do that. I'm not uh, sure Sarah, if, you, if any of them have, then please get in contact. Yeah, no, I want to see if any PC gamer has actually donated uh, to Syrian children uh, whilst mining Ethereum or, or linked those two together. Um, I think, you know, spare... I, I mean, I get it, right? You've got spare GPU space that, uh, that you could utilize and um, why not... Why not donate some of that if you're also profiting from it? I think it makes sense. I think it's great they call it donor coin. <laughs> yeah, good good on UNICEF, right? I mean, I don't know if we've had enough of these uh, these stories where uh, there's they're trying to link some unused capacity to doing something interesting. It's all been about like how does somebody profit quickly? Well, there was folding coin that happened years ago. The the project was at MIT does its folding at home where basically you can donate part of your computer to do really complex calculations to calculate genomes or I have no idea what it's actually for, but you could get a cryptocurrency that you could then go and sell uh, was one of the ideas put on top of it. This is similar, I guess, to use your spare capacity. Um, I guess it's not too far away from a story we talked about a few months ago where um, instead of getting ads on your computer, you go, oh yeah, run this little thing and you can mine Bitcoin for two minutes on your PC and then you can actually watch a video or whatever and it'll happen in the background. Similar idea, only this is, I guess, going for a good cause. And I will point out that it is UNICEF France. So way to go, France. Mm, moving on to stories we didn't have time to cover. Uh, bitsonline.com. Uh, BTC is a fork of Bitcoin Cash, says a U.S. government standards agency, which, uh, okay, good on them for being the authority on all things happening in bitcoin but um uh, i think i think reddit would argue uh that would just be, let's let's just send this standards agency into reddit and see what happens next um, <laughs> and ask me anything on reddit <laughs> that would be fun coin telegraph uh and blockchain called qtum has launched the first ever quote blockchain node into space because why not but hold on hold on didn't blockstream do this with a bitcoin node like six months ago i think this is the second ever blockchain node into space do your research before you go for the hyperbolic headlines people um and in royalmint.com um royal mint gold on a blockchain colin is this is that like live live or is it just well they talked about this what six months a year ago everything's six months ago now um they talked about this a while ago that cme was partnering with them to do this um i don't think it's live quite yet but uh, i think there were still a lot of things to be worked out 
So we don't know what's real here or what's not, but they've got a very nice website, that's for sure. I certainly don't know what's in the blocks. No, I don't think anybody does. I'm I'm really hoping there's some gold there somewhere. All right, um, don't forget, listeners, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered or the ones we've not covered and that we should have uh, by tweeting at Insider to share your thoughts, or you can give a stick directly at SYTaylor um, or at Colin G. Platt if you want to pick up with the GSAS personally. Uh, and Sarah, what's your Twitter handle? It's Seronimos, that's S. S-A-R-O-N-I-M-O. So you mentioned a few times to for people to tweet you if, if we're factually incorrect. I don't get a lot of tweets about factual incorrectness. I'm guessing it's because when people are listening to this. I mostly get hate mail. Yeah, although Gary Fagan um, d- d- does get in touch quite a bit, so who knows. Uh, don't forget as well, you can head to fintechinsidernews.com if you want to comment on any of these stories. All of them go up there. All right, so we're going to head to an interview with uh, Jameson Lop from BitGo. And Yay! Colin's so excited. Great. So we have the pleasure today of being joined by Mr. Jameson Lop. Jameson, how are you, sir? Doing well. Uh, Jameson, uh, for our listeners who may live under a rock and haven't heard of you, could you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. So uh, I've been in the Bitcoin and crypto asset space for a number of years now, basically got interested in uh, 2012 and, and started falling down the rabbit hole and trying to understand it better. So I, I really just started looking at the code, um, making my own fork and uh, offering this sort of statistic uh, dashboard that was geared towards Bitcoin developers so that we could better understand internal operations of Bitcoin nodes. And, and as I kind of went down this journey of mostly self-teaching, uh, I wrote a lot about what I was learning and after doing that for a few years, realized that I wanted to just go ahead and do it full time. So I've been working at BitGo for three years and mainly focusing on uh, operational infrastructure for our Bitcoin and other like blockchain network wallets. So it's just a continual learning process for me. And, and I guess the final state that I've come to is that, you know, this is a system that is still constantly evolving and changing. And it's really become a full-time job just trying to keep up with everything that's going on. So I try to do all the, the grunt work and distill that into little sound bites so that uh, regular people who aren't you know as deep into it as I am can try to keep up with all of the innovation that's happening. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, trying to keep up as a full-time job. That's a, that's a great statement. And it's so true. Uh, and, and of course, to, to help with that as well, your website, um, you have, I think, is it lop.net, L-O-P-P.net? Uh, that's right forward slash bitcoin you have a list of kind of educational materials that is one of the links i send out most most often onto uh, kind of people just looking to deluge themselves into this space so as you've kind of done the education piece um what are your favorite sound bites and what are your favorite common misconceptions well uh one of the the things that i end up saying to a lot of people is that you know bitcoin is not necessarily one specific thing or you know that it doesn't have any specific end goal because there is no authority to dictate you know what the final purpose of bitcoin is it is this sort of organic community project and as a result i would say you know it has actually changed over the years as to what it is targeting as we learn more about it, as we learn what we can do with it and how to extend the technology. So it can be very confusing because 
most people are used to having some sort of authority over any given system that can then say, well, this is what the system's goals are. And, and you know, this is the roadmap for how we're going to try to achieve our goals. But there is there is no you know even official roadmap in the Bitcoin system. It it's just uh, people make proposals for changes. A lot of them get shot down. Some of them make it through the gauntlet, and we end up with new functionality. And uh, and other people just go off and start building without asking permission from anyone. And some some of those projects fail, some of them succeed. It's a it's a very you know startup like atmosphere. There was an interesting point you made in there about there's no official guidance. A, a lot of people uh, point to the white paper. Obviously, I think when I first heard about Bitcoin, I, I read the white paper. I, I imagine it was similar similar for you. What do you say to people that say that is? the vision or that is kind of the guidance bearing in mind that yes we've learned more about it and things pivot um yeah so uh we've we've even got you know a certain group of people who are very keen on trying to follow uh, what they believe is satoshi nakamoto's vision who was the anonymous creator of the system and you can read into the white paper and try to interpret different things but it it becomes just like any other sort of historical text and so I'm seeing people really create dogma around their interpretations of, of different uh, quotes from Satoshi, whether that's in the white paper or on forums uh, or whatever in the several year period that he was active before he disappeared. And my, my main response to that is that, first of all, Satoshi left. So as soon as he stopped contributing to the system, he no longer has a voice. Uh, his vision is basically irrelevant. The only thing that matters is the sort of collective vision of the people who are currently participating in the system and trying to improve it. So, you know, you can sort of take a historical view and say, well, I'm going to try to do what Satoshi wanted. But my belief is that if you're going to do that, you should at least say, well, uh, this is my perspective, and I like what Satoshi liked, and these are the reasons why I think we should try to do this, not just you know make appeals to authority to a figure that is no longer really a part of the active community. It's an interesting perspective because it starts to resemble a religion, and this is something Colin said for, for some time, is, is the Bitcoin space does have uh, a lot of similarities to a religion insofar as uh, it starts out with a text, and then it becomes lots of um, warring factions for the true, um, true Bitcoin, the true belief what is the right coin what is the right one true god and there seems to be more and more of them uh, how would you sort of summarize uh, some of the challenges that have been created in in the recent years around uh, scaling and would you say that's bitcoin's biggest issue or would you say there are there are other things that, it, that face it as well i mean it's definitely been interesting to see how this has all played out so you know we had about three years of very vigorous debates and while there are certainly a lot of similarities to, you know, religious or propaganda type uh, wars. The, the interesting thing about forking in general um, and, and forking in open source software has been a thing for, for decades now. But the entire point of being able to fork a software or fork a blockchain, fork an, an open system is that this provides you for an avenue, a you know, non-confrontational, non-violent avenue to change your perspective of the system. So whereas like in political systems, we generally see like 
a democracy or representative democracy where, you know, whoever can get 51% of the votes basically gets to impose their perspective on the other uh, 49%. In Bitcoin, that's not how it works. If you get 51% of the votes uh, and there's 49% who are against whatever change you're trying to make, then instead of you being able to force them to accept your new rules, you have to go create a new network. And now the networks split and, and each uh, perspective gets to basically compete in the marketplace to see you know, who can offer the best properties um, of money or whatever other functionality the system is offering to users. What, what really, I think, hit, hits on, on a point I've been talking about a little while about Bitcoin is um, the kind of social groups that um, Bitcoin has initially appealed to. So um, the libertarian faction in the United States and in other places were very early adopters. Um, we can talk about uh, criminals for economic reasons, uh, Silk Road being kind of the, the front foot of that. But I think libertarians were even earlier than that. Um, would you say it's a fair characteristic that, um, relatively speaking, um, that is a, a small group that saw, A, um, some commonalities in their own economic views, but more importantly, kind of this, this very fact you just mentioned, um, we have the freedom to do something and it can't be forced, or am I missing the point completely? Yeah. Um, and whether you want to say, you know, it's libertarianism or voluntarism or anarcho-capitalism, um, uh, I, I consider myself like a cypherpunk and a crypto anarchist. And so I originally got interested in the system, both from a technical standpoint, because uh, I'm a computer science uh, major, but also from a philosophical standpoint of uh, money is this you know abstract concept that I believe belongs to all of humanity. I don't believe that any person or any group uh, has a special claim to being able to dictate what money is. So, you know, over most of history, you've had some sort of authority and power, whether they're, you know, political in nature or uh, central banks or, or whatnot, that has basically dictated the specific properties of the monetary system. And I thought that it was amazing that we now have the ability to basically have a collaborative project where anyone who is interested can give their input and say, you know, these are the properties that I believe that a monetary system should have. So from, from that standpoint, I think that it will always be rooted in some of that philosophy and ideology. But of course, as we've seen different waves of adoption happen over the years, you see people coming into the system for different reasons. A lot of those more recently uh, due to mainstream media is just People coming in because they see dollar signs and they, you know, they want to ride the wave and, and get rich quick. And that can be detrimental, of course. Uh, not only detrimental. I mean, um, I, I think you, you posted on this and, and we've talked a lot about this. Bitcoin's an experiment. Um, and we like to say, you know, if you're new to it, never put money that you wouldn't be happy taking to a weekend in Vegas. I know a lot of people that have been in it for a long time are, are very heavily invested, um, not only from a monetary point of view, but also their time. Um, people like you know a lot about this and I think you know the risks you're taking and, and the experimental nature of it um, but anybody else getting into it you may get rich but you you very likely will lose a lot of money on, on at least a short term yeah and I mean I've lost money in a number of different incidents in fact uh, I just had an incident this week 
where I realized that uh, a, a wallet that I had been working on for BitGo last year that I had put a decent amount of money into was actually uh, corrupted. And so I'm currently working to see if I can possibly recover that, but it's not looking good. And it was a you know non-trivial amount of money in there. But um, that's kind of, especially when you're a developer in this space, it's one of the risks that you take. But early adopters of anything in general are, are taking uh, inordinate amount of risk compared to what the mainstream people will end up taking because by the time it's ready for mainstream, most of those bugs and kinks will be worked out. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's high risk, but also potentially high reward uh, from an investment standpoint. No, it's interesting perspective. I, I guess you say when it's ready for mainstream, uh, implied in that statement is that it's not ready for mainstream yet. And, and yet, um, Colin and I sort of talked uh, late last year when we were looking at all-time highs for Bitcoin of you know the $19,000, that I felt like the mainstream had moved in and perhaps the mainstream had moved in too early because there, were, there was a risk of getting burnt. Uh, you may have seen that in some Reddit forums, the suicide prevention uh, hotlines are, are kind of becoming the, the, the main thing because, uh, you know, this ready for mainstream thing could be a while away. Uh, do you think we are some time away from that? Or do you think it's it's actually, no, the, it's just a case of building the right user experience, the tech is ready? Uh, the tech is definitely not ready. Um, so I would say that you, you might believe that Bitcoin and crypto assets are mainstream. And that's because of the mainstream media coverage. So I think I saw some stats recently where you know, more than 50% of Americans have heard of the word Bitcoin, but less than 1% of them actually own any, much less you know, really understand the, the value and the utility of the system. Um, but even from a technical scaling standpoint, there's no way that any of these blockchain systems can currently handle uh, mainstream like transaction volumes, uh, they would all basically fall over and everybody would be very upset if, if you know, an entire country tried to start using uh, any of these on-chain uh, transaction systems. And, and that's why we have a lot of developers who are very excited about building the second layer payment technologies that are going to give us the scalability that we really need to go mainstream. But I think the best way that I've heard it described, uh, Andreas Antonopoulos had a great talk where he was talking about um, how the internet evolved and how it failed to scale over and over and over again. And you know, in the early days, like 56K dial-up internet, there were a lot of things that you could not do because you simply did not have the bandwidth and the, the user interfaces were just not ready. But over the years, we continue to build additional layers on top of the technology. Uh, the hardware continues to get better. And we're able to realize really the dreams of, of what a lot of people are thinking of today, but just reality is not there yet. So um, from a lot of technical standpoints, I think it's not ready, but also there is there's an issue of almost like a cultural or, or perspective change that I think is required. And that's because we're moving from uh, a, a type of system that has been in place for pretty much all of recorded history of having trusted authorities that you can go to if you have a problem and they'll, you know, they'll fix the problem for you to going to a system that requires you know, you to take ultimate responsibility for any screw ups that you might have. And so the result of that is that a lot of people who get into these systems right now who, who don't have the right mindset, uh, 
can very easily make a mistake, uh, be negligent. Um, there's a million ways to lose your Bitcoin and pretty much everybody has lost uh, Bitcoin in one way or another if they've been in the system long enough. That's one of the, the sort of constants that I've seen from talking to anyone who has been using it for a number of years. Um, and, and whether it's just, uh, you know, out of out malice from someone hacking you, but um, more likely just due to negligence and, and forgetfulness and, you know, losing your keys somehow, uh, you know, even if it's just like, oh, I accidentally put my, uh, um, my USB drive or my ledger wallet through the wash or something like that. And I didn't have any backups. So, uh, I've lost count of how many different ways I've heard of people losing their money. And of course, because there's no authority, you can't get it back. That would make a great YouTube series, A Million Ways to Lose Your Bitcoin. And, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think that could be pretty fun. So there's, there's three things you touched on there. Um, I think before we get into the scaling stuff, I want to talk about um, the idea that the, because there's a million ways to lose your Bitcoin, um, we live in a world where consumer tech is playing to laziness. Uh, it's playing to the dopamine receptors in the human brain being as, as, as easy to attack as possible and just to, just to get people coming back and staring at stuff and not know why they're staring at it but the, the second part of that is uh we're also in a phrase of um there is a, a cognitive load at which an amount of money for people becomes too much. Uh, so um, I, I come from the financial services background and, and I was talking to somebody uh, who works in wealth management a couple of weeks ago for, for a different podcast we do. And they were saying, everybody has that number. Everybody has that number where it's like, okay, I, I can't do this anymore. Somebody please help me and make me feel that it's okay. Like, do you feel that there's still a role for that with Bitcoin? Does Bitcoin obviate the need for the individual to do key management or or is that just a perspective of what Bitcoin could mean? Yeah, key management is definitely one of the fundamental issues at play here, uh, especially for you know the really early adopters who now are you know richer beyond their wildest dreams, um, and and the result of that, of course, is you hear more and more horror stories of of people losing millions and millions of dollars in an instant. So. I think we're going to see two different things happen and we're already seeing them start to happen. And one of those is going to be the rise of reputable custodial services. Um, and, you know, I think they're going to start by catering to the institutions and eventually that'll probably also be catering to like family offices and just high net worth individuals. And then you're going to see some other folks who take a more like cypherpunk uh perspective and say, you know, we're going to work on building non-custodial software that is also user-friendly so that we can realize the dream of you being your own bank without you having the nightmare of being your own bank where you have to, you know, basically have armed guards, you know, surrounding your, your house or your castle or whatever. Um, there are technical ways to allow people to be their own bank, in my opinion, that actually make it more secure than what you can get from a traditional bank. But at the moment, it's very difficult to set up a, a, a system like that. And I think that's interesting. There may be technical ways to do it, but can we create the behavior change? And that's a user experience question that's an interesting one. And I wonder if there's a dissonance between the kind of uh, the, the origin story of Bitcoin being adversarial to the concept of central banks and adversarial to the concept of banking as a system. Um, and actually this, this messy reality that we find ourselves with in which institutions and custodians are working within Bitcoin. And there's, a, there's almost a many, fl many flowers 
flowers bloom, uh, both in the technical level in terms of many different projects forking and many different ideas being recommended. But at the business level and the user experience level, you've got the large institutions kind of reverting to type, trying to buy Bitcoin through custody and so on. Uh, and then you've got kind of this, this alternative narrative of you can still be your own bank. We're just working on it. Do you think that Bitcoin has to be the adversary of uh, of sovereigns and central banks and and do you think it's helpful or unhelpful to continue down the the adversarial route yeah i mean i think that developers building bitcoin uh both at the protocol level and the application level with a adversarial perspective is what makes it stronger that's that's why it is the honey badger of money and um I think uh, going back to like Andreas Antonopoulos again, he had a great presentation a few years ago, which I believe was called uh, Bubble Boy and Sewer Rat. And he was essentially making the argument that a system that is constantly under attack is going to end up being stronger because you're building up immunity to every possible attack vector. And you know, from a protocol standpoint, Bitcoin has been extremely solid. We haven't had any incidents since I think like 2014. There was a, a short uh, chain fork that happened, but um, it is a little bit concerning. You know, seeing the centralization that is happening in a lot of custodial providers, and I do worry that that is introducing more systemic risk. But I'm optimistic because I'm seeing these technologies, especially Lightning Network and related stuff that is going to, I believe, increase the competition in the exchange space so that in a year or two, I expect we're going to have a lot of decentralized exchange software that people will just be able to download, run locally, and be able to exchange crypto assets truly peer-to-peer in a trustless fashion that does not require them to deposit them into a, a custodial exchange that then has all of these systemic risks where they might get hacked, they might uh, freeze your account due to AML KYC, um, or uh, they might just fall over under the load of trying to serve all of the requests of other customers. And so building you know, decentralized permissionless exchange software then results in us having this big, wide uh, network that is the quote-unquote exchange. And once you get that uh, distributed out amongst many, many different computers, then you've gotten rid of uh, a number of different attack vectors, including uh, denial of service issues. It's an interesting tension that we find ourselves with between kind of the uh, need for faster, better infrastructure uh, that that reverted to centralization. Um, and, and if you think you used the metaphor of the internet earlier, um, the early cypherpunk movement around the internet was trying to rebuild uh, the individual's relationship with how it's how, how we're governed. Um, and, and I think there was a lot of ideology ideology that's not dissimilar from what we see in the bitcoin movement uh there's definitely though i think uh as there were some choice design choices made as the internet evolved that did give it some elements of centralization and some elements of government control uh, and indeed the business models that evolved after it appear to have been more centralized than ever. The layer above the internet now you see um, the tech giants of these winner-take-all platforms. Um, is it just that we're fighting human nature by trying to decentralize uh, it to, to a certain degree uh, anyway? And um, but before we get into that as well, you've, we've, we've kind of floated around the idea of, of scaling. You've mentioned um, Lightning Network. You've mentioned SegWit. Give us a tour of what they are and uh, kind of where they're at in their, in their development. 
development? Sure. So you have a couple of different perspectives of how to quote unquote scale these uh, blockchain networks. And uh, one of them is a more naive, straightforward way that just says, oh, let's increase the size of the blocks and allow more data to go into them. And that, uh, from a computer science standpoint, is known as vertical scaling. Whereas we have uh, a bunch of people who want to take a different approach, which is to try to minimize the amount of data on the blockchain and instead scale using multiple layers of technology and uh, scale in a way that would be considered horizontal scaling. So... In very high-level terms, vertical scaling doesn't work very well in the long term because you end up having to buy more and more expensive computers to process all of the data that you're throwing at them. Whereas horizontal scaling means that you're basically dispersing the load across many, many computers, and thus uh, you're able to use you know cheaper, low-cost computers to, to run whatever application you want. And this was actually something that I was very involved in in my previous job. I was working basically as a, uh, a cloud uh, data engineer doing large-scale um, analytics for a marketing company that would send out hundreds of millions of emails every day. And we would then have to crunch through all of that data, you know, terabytes and petabytes of data as quickly as possible. And so we had you know, thousands of machines that were running and crunching all of these numbers. So I've definitely seen the, the cost difference between vertical and horizontal scaling. And what uh, we're trying to do with Bitcoin is scale in a similar way that uh, the internet itself scaled. And that is by basically building multiple layers on top of each other. So if you look at the way the internet is architected, it's a seven layer software and hardware stack. The very, very lowest layer, uh, it's the ethernet layer. And basically what that is, is a broadcast global type of data transmission where you, you put data out there and it goes to everybody else on your local network. And that is really how uh, the Bitcoin blockchain works. You make a transaction, you broadcast it on the network, and literally everybody on the network gets that transaction, validates it, relays it, and stores it forever on their hard drive. This is terrible for scaling. This is like the least efficient type of database that I believe has ever been architected. But it was required in order to solve a double spending problem, the Byzantine General's problem, which was you know, pretty innovative on its own. Of course, the trade-off is it's very inefficient. So if the internet only had the ethernet layer, we would not be able to do what we're doing right now. We would not be able to transmit audio and video uh, across the world because everybody else on the internet would have to get that data stream and relay it. And of course your bandwidth would very quickly fill up just from having a few thousand people trying to use the internet. There's no way it would scale to millions and billions of users. So instead what they did with the internet is they created these uh, routing layers on top of it so that your data is actually only hopping through the minimum number of other nodes on the internet in order to get to its final destination. And this allows us to scale much better because we're, we end up using a lot less of the sort of global available bandwidth. And uh, you can make an argument that that is more centralized, uh, but it is much more efficient. It's still, however, permissionless because if one of those nodes along the route that uh, 
that you're using to send data back and forth, if that node starts to become uh, a bad actor or they get knocked offline or anything goes wrong, that's okay. You just route around them, use some other nodes, and you know now you have a new path uh, to use uh, for your, your data transmission. And so that really is how the Lightning Network works, is that we, we anchor into the Bitcoin blockchain to create something called a payment channel. And then we have a bunch of nodes that have payment channels connected to each other, and they are routing data back and forth. But in this specific case, the data represents monetary value. So now you can have this network mesh of nodes that you can find a number of different paths to, to route your money through very quickly. Um, it's basically you know, instantaneous at the sort of speed of, uh, of the internet itself. And so it'll uh, end up being a lot cheaper and a lot faster than trying to do on-chain stuff. Um, and as for SegWit, uh, very high level overview of that is that it's just fixing a tiny flaw in the Bitcoin protocol uh, called transaction malleability. And, and that allows us to create these payment channels, which then allow us to transmit these uh, Bitcoin transactions between each other off chain, you know, without broadcasting to the entire network. Uh, it basically gives us some additional cryptographic and game theory guarantees that enable the Lightning Network to work. And the Lightning Network is really complicated. Uh, to put it in perspective, the Bitcoin white paper was about nine pages and the Lightning Network white paper is about 60 pages. So it's, it's more complicated. It involves a lot of game theory and it does provide a slightly different security model, but uh, it also provides a lot of amazing benefits. On the scaling aspect and moving away from Lightning, which I think is fascinating and people are interested, uh, definitely check out the 60 odd pages of white paper. Um, there was a really big effort to look not only at implementing SegWit uh, the middle of last year, but something called SegWit2x. And we've talked about that a lot on the show, so so listeners have an idea about what's going on there. A lot of people were against that. So in short, uh, for those people that don't remember, it was implement this segregated witness that you talked about, which fixes this malleability, but also do a bit of this horizontal scaling uh, to double the block size effectively uh, without accounting for the SegWit, because I know that that skews numbers. Um, why was there a pushback against that? And can you talk a bit more about hard forks? Sure. Uh, there was pushback for a number of different reasons. One of the main reasons being that this was an agreement between a handful of enterprises. It happened at the consensus conference in New York. Uh, I happened to be at that conference, so I, I was not a part of any of the discussions because that, that was only really like CEOs that were part of that New York agreement. Uh, so th this left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths because it was done, you know, quote unquote, behind closed doors. It was not this open process of trying to go out to the community and, and find consensus. It was rather just, you know, a small group of enterprises that have their own specific interests uh, trying to create consensus and force it on the rest of the network by getting a bunch of miners to uh, agree with them and, and claim that they were going to go and hard fork and put all the hash rate on the new fork. But um, from a even higher level, like non-governance standpoint, one of the reasons that a lot of people are so opposed to just increasing the block size is because it you know, creates a greater resource uh, demand for those of us that run fully validating nodes. 
and and fully validating nodes are what you have to run to have the strongest security model that the protocol offers. And when you're doing that, you have to download and val validate every transaction that has ever happened in the entire history of Bitcoin. So even just you know doubling the uh, amount of data that's going in can very easily make it uh, grow at a larger and faster rate and would you know price certain people out of being able to do that from a computational standpoint. So you know eventually I think that we are going to need bigger blocks, but we've seen a number of different uh, entities show us over the past year or two that they are using the blockchain very inefficiently. And, you know, one of the biggest uh, entities that is doing that is Coinbase, for example, where, you know, every time you want to do a withdrawal from them, they will create a new transaction uh, with a few inputs and one output to you and one change output back to themselves. And they could easily make this, you know, orders of magnitude more efficient by batching up those transactions and, you know, just creating one transaction that pays out to like 100 people. From a data size standpoint, that would be much more efficient for the blockchain. And so if you look at the blockchain as this communal resource, then you realize that it's subject to sort of a, a problem of the commons. And when there are no fees or very low fees to use this data and you know get your transactions stored on 100,000 computers around the world, you don't have a great incentive to be a good steward of this resource and use it efficiently. And that's one of the reasons why, even though a fee market can be very frustrating for a lot of users um, and it can be somewhat unpredictable, that is really the only way that we can think of having an incentive for users to you know, be efficient in, in how they're using this uh, communal resource. So I think if you see, if we see a lot of these big companies start to use the blockchain more efficiently, and then we're still running out of space and there's like no more way to squeeze any more efficiency out of the system, I think it would be a lot easier to convince people that we need a block size increase. It's a bit similar to like a, a toll road, right? Um, if, if the roads are free, you'll you'll drive you know five miles down the road to go pick up groceries ten times a day if that's what you want to do. But if it costs you ten bucks to do it every single time, you might think about you know grouping some of those things together. The the question I'd have on on that, and, and I completely take that point. If there are companies that are running this and are still very profitable, which is what we've understood from Coinbase in the last week, um, and and many of these other companies. Why not let them do it? Yeah, and well, that's the thing is they're they're free to to use the the protocol and then the network however they want. Um, and I think one of the reasons that we've seen it go so far that you know even when uh, transactions could be like ten or twenty dollar transaction fee and they still just keep doing this inefficient uh, method of of using the blockchain. I think that a lot of that is because they're passing the fees directly on to their users. Um, and so the company itself might not see a huge incentive to, to be uh, more efficient in their usage. And so at that point, you need some sort of other feedback mechanism. And I think we've seen that start to happen over the past few months where um, people like myself are looking at the network where we're doing test transactions with uh, these various entities and trying to figure out how efficient they're using the network. And if they're not doing a very good job at it, we just 
put it out there. We publicize the information and we let the, the users of these services know that they um, could be saving a lot of money if these companies would just you know, adopt a few new methods and, and adopt a new technology like SegWit. So we, we need this like organic feedback me- mechanism. And I think a lot of companies have started to hear that feedback and some of them have already implemented these methods and, and others have said that they're working on them. Can I take um, a bit of a um, transition here into uh, Bitcoin maximalism? Um, This is something I've heard people call you a Bitcoin maximalist. I don't know if you agree with the title, Um, but could you tell us what Bitcoin maximalism is and maybe why why Bitcoin maximalists see Bitcoin as um, different, better than everything else that exists? Yeah, I mean... I think it basically comes down to some of the theories around money itself that, you know, the, the best money is going to basically crowd out all of the other types of money. Um, and because money is a network, the, the larger the network is, the more value it has. And so there are a number of reasons why it makes more sense to have one big monetary network than a thousand little monetary networks. Um, I'm not so sure that I consider myself a maximalist. I mean, I, I do believe that Bitcoin and the developers and the people behind it um, have uh, a very conservative approach and that they're going to end up writing like the, the most efficient forms of, of adding functionality to these consensus systems that are, are safe for everyone. And, there's a number of different trade-offs that are going to you know, happen over the short term and long term due to that. And I think that has allowed some of these other systems to pop up and, and compete with Bitcoin for a number of different things. But over the long run, especially if you're looking at like the, the Bitcoin perspective versus the Ethereum perspective or versus the Bitcoin Cash perspective, I think that over the long run, uh, Bitcoin is going to emerge as the superior technology. What we're seeing happen now is that um, marketing, you know, is playing a really big role in, in a lot of these coins. And, uh, and I think that it marketing works until you get to the point that you're actually hitting like technical thresholds that require uh, high uh, engineering expertise. So it's more of a, like a long-term versus short-term vision. Um, but due to the, the permissionless nature of all of these crypto assets, I don't, I don't think that you know, all of them except Bitcoin are going to die. It's very hard to kill a permissionless network. Um, the only way you can kill the network is basically for everyone who is involved in the network to become so disillusioned that they all agree to just give up on using it and, and trying to improve it. But um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to, to see how the markets play out in the coming years. Um, but I think that a lot of the, the folks in the Bitcoin space take a much longer term viewpoint of, or at least I take a like decades, if not, you know, multi-generational approach to the system. So um, I'm not looking to build something that will just get replaced in few years or even 10 years, I want it to be functional for the very long term so that uh, we can finally 
meet this vision of having a, a global open monetary system that anyone with an internet connection can use. And I think that that's a really interesting point. I mean, a while ago, we talked about um, the notion that in any normal technology, if you're building phone apps or something, you're an entrepreneur, you're a developer, you, you build something it's great. Somebody uses it until somebody else builds a better thing. Um, whereas in blockchain, the people working in it, not in every project, but a lot of people working in it, um, have built this thing that until everybody becomes disillusioned, it continues to live and becomes, according to some circumstances, immutable, uh, or at least visible for a very long time, in which case you have more of a stewardship relationship. And because it's money, um, you have that incentive to say, I'm going to work and earn these things and I might give them to my children or my, my family. Um, and that, that could make it exist for a long time. Um, I think a lot of people still need to work on um, the mentality of how they treat that because there are a lot of people out there who are um, uh, less conservative um, and the, the move fast, break things is, is a great mentality in a lot of different parts of business. Um, when we're talking about dealing with people's money, um, it can be a bit irresponsible from time to time. Yeah. And uh, if anything, I would say I've been kind of surprised by the the lack of, of uh, adversarial events over the past year or so. You know, there, there have been a few things like with Ethereum smart contracts uh, going terribly wrong, you know, a few hundred million dollars getting lost or frozen. Um, but nothing, nothing too catastrophic. And so I think it's only going to be a matter of time before we get some more fireworks. It's always going to be interesting to watch those. I think we're just running out of time here. Jameson, thank you very much. We're a huge fan of your work. Where can people find out more about you and, and definitely get into read more about what you put out, not only on Twitter, but on your webpage? Yeah, so pretty much all of my content uh, that I do, whether it's uh, videos, uh, interviews, presentations, blog posts, whatnot, I, I, I make sure that all gets uh, aggregated and put on my website at lop.net. Great. Thank you very much for coming on, and we hope to have you back again soon. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, a big, big thank you to Jameson, and of course, uh, my co-host for today, Sarah. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, tell people where they can find out a little bit more about you and Clearmatics. Yeah, so you can find us online at clearmatics.com, or um, you can tweet us at Clearmatics, or as I mentioned before, you can tweet me too. Brilliant. And uh, your good self at Colin G. Platt. And you'll miss me next week because I'll be skiing. You'll be skiing, but you won't be in a garden. You're not putting flowers into your garden. You're not like... There'll be trees, but like under the snow, there's not a lot of plants growing. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you can... Okay, fair enough. Do you not have plans for like a water feature? or Anyway, we'll get to this next week if you want to... The week after, we'll talk a lot about plants in the mountains because I know Simon's really into horticulture nowadays. <laughs> uh, alrighty. Um, big thank you to Laura Watkins, our producer, Michael Bailey, our sound editor. Um, and we are not with uh, our assistant producer, Petrit, this week, who's recovering from an operation. So get well soon. Uh, as a reminder, 11FS, who bring you this podcast, we help you build stuff. We help you do stuff. Uh, if you want to do something in the blockchain space, remember that we're here and you can hit up 11FS.com to find out more. Thank you very much for listening. I'd like to remind you that if you do like what you hear, please just subscribe to the podcast or leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so, so much. Spread the word. Tell all of your friends and anybody you can get your hands on to listen to if they want to learn more about the latest news in blockchain and some of the best interviews out there. We'll have more next week. For now, goodbye.